Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mecha Dragon, a podcast about all the geeky and nerdy stuff you love, but mostly TV and movies right now. Brought to you by Captain Geek and the Dark Nerd. I'm your Captain Will. And I'm your nerd, Jess. Today we are talking The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, the new show on Netflix that is the prequel to the 1982 film, which we did a uh, podcast on a couple weeks ago, uh, entitled The Dark Crystal. And today we also have with us film critic Aaron Hansen from Screen Hub Entertainment. Good to have you back, Eric. You said Aaron. I did? You did say Aaron. Oh my god, yeah. what's wrong with me? Okay, let me redo that. And today we are privileged no, just to have... leave it in so you can live with your shame. <laughs> well, I just might. I just might, but I'm going to get this just for safety's sake. <laughs> but um, today we are privileged to have with us Eric Hansen of Screen Hub Entertainment. Welcome, Eric. Hello, Will. Jess, glad to be back on our third voyage through all things geeky. Yes. Yeah, what's up, Eric? Nice to have you again. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Now, we thought that it would be great to have Eric back, not only because we love having him on the show, but because, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but you had never seen the Dark Crystal movie until, what, like a week ago before you started watching the show? Is that right? That is correct. Uh, I'd never gotten around to seeing the movie when I was a kid, unfortunately, and I had seen a couple of uh, reviews on it, but I hadn't seen the film itself in its entirety. And then the show started getting all these rave reviews, so I'm like, well, I better check this movie out before I check out the show. And, and I did, because uh, it, was, it was also currently on Netflix. So that was, uh, that great. was an experience. Yeah, so I thought that it would be great to have uh, a perspective of somebody who, you know, hadn't seen the, sh the movie a long time ago and was more recently exposed to it. Because, you know, one of the things that Jess and I talked about in our Dark Crystal movie episode was the fact that, you know, the difference between seeing it, like, in the 80s versus seeing it now... Uh, both as a kid and as an adult, and so I thought that that there might be some interesting things there. So that'll be a you know maybe a, a good contrast to uh, you know what Jess and I have to say about it. So why don't we get started? Uh, just to lay uh, lay down a little context. So the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance takes place, I think, according to something I saw online from Netflix, approximately 50 years prior to the events of the Dark Crystal movie. It is a 10-episode series on Netflix that was released uh, like the end of August, and it each episode is about an hour long, uh, roughly, you know, maybe like 50 minutes to an hour. So why don't we just start with uh, first impressions, and uh, I, why don't we start with Jess this time? Jess, why don't you give us your, your, your general impressions of the show, and we could even start with a non-spoilery talk just for a few minutes for people who maybe haven't seen gotcha. it yet and, are, and who are looking, you know, to get an idea of whether or not they want to watch it. And we don't have to spend very much time in the non-spoiler part, but why don't we just begin with that for a couple minutes? So, Jess, go. All right. First off, the show I thought was fantastic. It was probably three or four times better than I was expecting it to be. Hmm. Um, I thought they really did well relating to the original uh, content from the movie. It's like the certain sets you were on in the show. Couldn't even tell them apart. They they did it basically true to form of the first the of the original movie. It was a great show. And right around episode three or four, like I told you, my son 
after he watched the movie, he was like, it was all right. <laughs> well, he's like, hey, let's watch The Dark Crystal. And he was excited to watch it. And then, like, uh, right around episode three and four, he's like, wow, this is starting to get crazy. <laughs> and he was really into it. So that's what, whenever I had him around, that's when we'd make it uh, Dark Crystal time. We'd sit down and watch it. My daughter wasn't interested. She missed the first couple episodes. But, yeah, I, I was blown away by it. Fantastic. Eric, what, what are your, uh, you know, general thoughts about this show? Pretty much the same thing as Jess's son. Because <laughs> uh, when when I saw the movie, um, and a common criticism I'd heard of the movie was that it was very exposition heavy, and it is. There's not mm-hmm. a lot of character development in the original Jem Henson film, which is sad because it's such a creative world, and the puppetry and practical effects in it are so magical. And unfortunately, the, the movie spends so much time trying to explain its world that you don't really get to know the characters that inhabit it that well. Now, the show corrected that and then some because the show not only has you know very vibrant lively and memorable characters but it explains and explores some of the more interesting concepts of the original film in ways that are i think a lot more interesting than the henson film and that's coming from Mm -hmm. somebody that really really wanted to like the henson film but the script you know kind of killed it for me but this show has all the magic puppetry of the original film with a fantastic group of writers because they really crafted a, a wonderful story with you know great characters and it's just it's just uh it's just great to finally see this world more fully explored right so i'm interested in this uh contrast between what you thought about the movie and what you thought about the the show could you give us just a quick you know explainer of of what you thought of of the movie and then you know compared to the show as I said before, I think the movie, it has a wonderful mood, a great atmosphere, and it really does set up and explain the rules of this world very well. But the plot is kind of a by-the-numbers fantasy thing about a prophecy, you know, some kind of vague prophecy where this, you know, hero is prophesied to save the world. We don't know why it's him. We don't know what's special about him, and that's kind of all he does. He does this thing because it's told that he's supposed to do this thing, and the movie if you really watch it and pay attention to the dialogue, most of the dialogue is info dumps. It's info dumps about the prophecy and about this world. And there's very little. Starting with with, the big voiceover at the beginning, by the way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, and the first scene that, you know, Jen has with his master, the mystic, like for instance, you don't really get to see scenes of him and his master bonding of Jen growing up learning things it just goes right right, it just goes right to oh hey here's this prophecy you got to go do this thing and that's literally the whole movie it's just him doing the thing we don't see really how it affects him what he learns from it or how this kind of brings him and his um his love interest closer together it's just all exposition and to me and it broke my heart because the movie looks wonderful the ideas are wonderful and the world is Again, it's 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 all wonderful. It's just the script. I am not knocking mm-hmm. Jim Henson at all. He did an amazing job bringing the world to life in spite of the issues with the script. So that was kind of my issue with the Do you think that film. these like issues the with the script and the lack of character development that you're talking about is something... It occurs to me that given that the main target audience for the, the film was kids, basically, I wonder if that is sort of more in line with what kids movies were doing at that time and is that something you know that 
it doesn't matter as much to kids as the character development. Now, I'm not saying that you know kids can't uh, appreciate good character development in a kid's film, but I'm just wondering if uh, that might play into it a little bit and what your thoughts are on that. I mean, it's possible they felt that, you know, kids might not understand the plot as much. But the thing is, a kid can understand an image. And the best type, the best way to deliver a story in film is visually. And there are so many ideas there that they could have explored more in a more visual way, therefore making more room for character development. And I think the reason this film is a cult classic instead of just a classic is that issue with the script. Hmm. Because all the other elements, like we've all said, are just so incredibly strong. So it just doesn't quite yeah. get that last piece of it is, you know, is what I'm getting from your uh, opinion here. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't really disagree with that. I think that for me, when I originally no. watched the movie way back, I was just so enthralled by the world of it. And that's kind of what I was focused on. You know, I've always loved fantasy. And if I can be swept away and feel like, you know, I know what it's like to be in a fantasy world, then generally speaking... I was pretty happy as a kid. But so then you're saying that these are not the problems that the show has, because I would agree that the writing was just really, really stellar uh, in the show. Yeah. Quite frankly, the show does not, the show doesn't have problems. It just doesn't. (laughs) It's just a, it's a fantastic (laughs) show. Yeah. Like my one problem with the original movie was that it was so exposition heavy and that the exposition was very dry and it took away from the characters. This show not only puts a greater focus on character development when it does do exposition, it does it in a much more interesting and creative way, which we which we'll get to later in the podcast. Yeah. Well, just my, uh, you know, general thoughts on this in a non-spoilery way before we move on to the, uh, the, the deep dive, you know, for me, yeah, I was, Looking forward to this show because I really loved the movie when I was a kid and, um, you know, I rewatched it recently and I did have some relatively high expectations for it that were, you know, maybe tempered a little bit by the cynical part of myself and like just trying not to get my hopes up too much. But I really did expect a lot out of it once I heard that they were actually doing it with the puppets and, you know, you get to see a couple of those teasers that they put out. But even with that, when I finally sat down to watch this show, it blew me away. I was not prepared for how good this show was. I mean, in every single aspect. I mean, the puppetry is beautiful and amazing. The production design, just the artistic design of every little thing you see in the show is amazing. I mean, I really think they brought the art to a whole new level with the puppetry. Uh, I mean... The original movie was a big enough achievement on the puppetry uh, in the puppetry game, but like this, just I mean, they just brought it to a whole new level. I felt totally immersed. I thought. Well, one of the things, one of the things I thought going into the show is I was expecting not a lot, but I was expecting more CGI. You know, I was surprised to see very little in use throughout the show i mean the majority of it is all on sets that were built and stuff and that just shows yeah the dedication and amount of work that went into it i was expecting a lot more cgi than what i saw and i was impressed by that and as someone who's a big fan of practical effects and you know people like you know stan winston and and guys like that and of course jim Mm -hmm. henson it's it's great to see 
a show that puts such a heavy emphasis on practical magic. And, you know, it, oh yeah, I've, I've been hoping and saying this for a while that eventually practical effects are going to make a comeback. And I do think, you know, this show, even if you're not that big a fan of the story or the world, the, the amount that it has done in introducing the value of practical effects to a new audience mm-hmm. is, you know, absolutely incalculable. Good point. That is a really good point. You know, and, and this is also one of those shows that I think people are going to watch it, uh, y- you know, younger people or actually people of any age and be inspired. You know, this show might inspire people to take up a career in the arts or start drawing or, you know, start writing or whatever it is. But I really think this is the type of story and just entire production that has the potential to inspire a lot of people. And I really love that about it. So just to wrap up my general non-spoilery thoughts this show the dark crystal age of resistance is a sweeping epic fantasy adventure with an amazing level of puppetry and artistry that you probably have not seen before unless you saw the dark crystal (laughs) movie from 1982 you know it feels like exactly the same world as the movie it feels uh, it just fits perfectly and expands on it in all the right ways and I'm going to give this, you know, out of 10 crystals, I'm going to give it 10. This is a 10 out of 10 show for me. It's it's like you said, Eric, the show doesn't have problems. I mean, it just hits it out of the park. So just to wrap up the non-spoilery part of our talk, Jess uh, and then Eric, how many crystals out of 10 do you give this in your final parting comments for the non-spoiler part? I'm going to go ahead and also give it 10. It's, like I said, it sticks true to the original, and like Eric mentioned, it really builds upon the world, and so much work and effort went into it, and the show's got a fantastic cast, and they did a great job. The story is incredible, and, uh, you know, it was just a great way to explore the world that we had from the Dark Crystal kind of nostalgic reasons. And just on its own, it's a great show, even if you haven't seen the movie or have no desire to. Uh, You don't need to see the movie to understand it. But by the end of the series, I'm sure you'll want to. But yeah, it's just a great show, hands down. Okay, Eric? I'll give it 10 uncorrupted crystals of truth out of 10. Wow. Not... Not 10 dark crystals, <laughs> not 10 broken dark crystals that drain your life out of you so you can be turned into life-giving smoothies. No, I'm talking 10 right? uncorrupted crystals, crystals of truth. <laughs> wow, that is amazing. And <laughs> Eric, I you know I, I haven't read like every single review you've ever written or anything, at least yet, but I have the impression that you don't often give a 10 out of 10 uh, to things. Well, uh, I mean, I've given a couple of 10 out of 10s this year. I mean... I, I, de- I did for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I, and I right. did for this. But yeah, I mean, like both Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and this, they really feel like that that lightning in a bottle kind of event that you, you don't see. I mean, you really don't see it except for maybe a couple of times a year, maybe even a couple of times like every few years. Like I think yeah. this year's actually been right. – I think this year's actually been really good as far as, you know, television, streaming, and, you know – and actually some really, really good movies. So it's, I'm actually very, I was very pleasantly surprised with just how incredible the show was. 
It's a great year for movies and TV, that's for sure. All right, well, with that all said, I think we need to move on to the uh, meat of the matter, the spoiler part of the podcast. So if you have not seen the show yet and you do not want spoilers, it's time to press pause. It's (laughs) Stop. (laughs) It's time to press pause (laughs) and, uh, you know, go see the show and come back and press play when you're done. All right. So why don't we start uh, with Eric. Eric, what do you want to talk about with regard to Age of Resistance? Well, one of the things I'd like to talk about first is because we started off talking about exposition. And I want to compare and contrast with how the movie does it versus how this show does it. Because obviously when the movie does it, when the movie does it, it's just basically two characters talking and that's it. Whereas, yeah, whereas this movie you know, not only combines it with visuals, but also combines it with character development. Like, for example, the the big zinger at the end of the first episode is Rian's love interest, Mira, is killed. Like, you think this is going to be a major character. And she's the first one the Skeksis drain so they can drink her essence and give themselves, you know, revitalize themselves. They're basically like, they're kind of like vampires who use this machine to... Mm -hmm to draw the life force out of somebody. And it's a now, horrifying in, moment, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the issue with the film is that's in the film. But the film doesn't do it quite as well. Firstly, it happens to a character we care nothing for. Right. And You didn't care about ha- the girl Gelfling in, uh, in the movie? Oh, no, I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about the podling that they Oh, the podling, like right. Some, it's like some <laughs> Yeah, podling. the first ones they did. That's right. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like some podling we've, we've not grown connected to at all, and you just kind of see it happen. And it's very late in the movie that the movie explains that. And while it's happening, the scientist is kind of like explaining the process, even though we're watching it happen, so he doesn't really have to. Now, this movie, right. it, it happens to a character that we care about deeply by this point. And they're not explaining what's happening to the character. They're just showing it, and you understand what's going on. And it's absolutely terrifying how, how that scene is, you know, delivered. And mm-hmm. that was actually the moment that made me want to see the show because it was so surprisingly grim. <laughs> and I really admire I really admire shows like that that are aimed at families that are that are willing to take that risk and, and not patronize you know, the younger audience and say, you know, there are harsh things out there and you need to be ready yep. for them. And that was Jim Henson's yeah, and that's like philosophy. One thing you don't really, that's like one thing you don't really expect to see in, you know, puppets is a horrifying, traumatizing <laughs> death. You know, it's like <laughs> something like that and Muppets would be off the wall. We're, they're literally like sucking the soul out of them too, you know. It's not just... Right. Yeah. It's like, cover your eyes, young ones. Cover your eyes. And they linger on it. Like, you have that very long scene where they're all slurping the remains of this character. Oh, up, yeah. It's, it's, it's very disturbing. I mean, this, this is like something yeah, out of Texas. Yeah, it's kind of gross. This is like something out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for God's sake. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but another scene that, you know, delivers exposition very well is, I forget what, what episode it's in, but it's... It's when they run into the heretic, uh, the heretic, and Ergo the Wanderer at the Circle of the Suns, which is those two are probably oh, my yeah. those two are probably my favorite characters in the show, and yeah, they're, they're funny, they're hilarious. I mean, it's Andy Sandberg and Bill Hader, and they're wonderful. But they uh, they explain not only how the Skeksis and the Mystics were once 
single entities that were, you know, broken in two. And they explain that the Gelfling will somehow, you know, kind of bring balance to this world. But they do it in a way that's really fucking funny. And it's also very clever. <laughs> it's very clever because it's puppets explaining the plot with puppets. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Right. I love that's that whole thing. That's fucking hilarious. And they do it in a way that kind of develops their characters. Because uh, like, like the, the, the exposition in that scene is funnier and it's largely character focused. And it's also given a little bit of visual background with the puppets. So the information resonates a lot better than mm-hmm. it did in the film. And you get to see the reactions of the Gelflings watching it, too, you know. So there's those character moments sort of interspersed with this this whimsical, you know, great puppet show that's giving them all this exposition. So I love that. That's a good point. I mean, I think that they really did handle the exposition so well in this show that there was never a moment where I was kind of like, you know— doing the equivalent of like checking my watch because or yawning or something because it was like okay info dump time no it was all just weaved perfectly in through you know the story and the character development and i i thought that was uh really impressive uh so jess what's uh, what's an aspect of the uh, show that you really wanted to talk about today i liked uh how they really you know expanded on the skexies and you really see the power struggle you know, going on between all of them, you know, um, the Chamberlain, he gets kicked out again to, to go find, uh, what's his name? Rion, mm-hmm. I think. And then he meets up with them and he's kind of like playing both sides, you know, trying to get them back and pretending these, he's their friend and stuff. And I just thought they really did good. I loved seeing all the character development and learning more about all the characters and, you know, Hup, he was funny, even though he has, what a, he, he's basically the Hodor of the show, you know. Oh, her little he doesn't talk friend. a whole lot with his spoon. Yeah, with his spoon. I love how that one episode opens with him, like, waking up and getting ready for the day. You know, he, like, goes and he combs his right. hair and he, like, puts on his clothes and he eats his breakfast and all that stuff. And that was just a fun little, you know, way to open yeah. the episode. Was it, was that the that was the very first episode, wasn't it? No, it was maybe the That's second or third started. one, I think. Yeah, yeah no. I, I think yeah, it was second. probably the second one when yeah. we first meet Hunt. Yeah, okay, but yeah, it's just I just thought the whole thing was cool where they uh, you learn more about the workings, you know, of the podlings and the skexies, and you know all the whatchamacallums, gelflings, you know, seeing the the queen, it's it's very uh it's a patriarchal or matriarchal sorry society that they run and everything seems to be run by queens and women in this show the madras and the all madras yeah in power yeah so that was kind of cool just seeing a different different take on it and all the different types of gelflings and different clans well you really get you really get the impression that they've thought through you know how this entire setting works you know, with the different societies right. of the Gelflings and all, and like the eco, like the entire ecosystem. <laughs> you know, at least uh, at least in some instances, it, it seems clear they thought about the ecosystem a lot, and it's just a wonder well, to the whole. Also, you know, after the the movie came out, I mean, there's been comic books and stuff about you know the world of the Dark Crystal, and I'm wondering how much of this, you know, they took from that and what's considered canon and what isn't. 
and it'd be interesting to see. I mean, a lot of these characters in the show have probably already been in the, the comics and any other media out there about Dark Crystal. And that'd be interesting to look back and find that. Have you guys by any chance uh, seen the documentary on the making of this series called uh, The Crystal Calls? I have not. No. Yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it's also on Netflix. And that actually, Jess, that actually answers one of your questions because one of the writers on the young adult novels was actually bought on board the writing team for this show. Wow. Oh, yeah, I didn't. I've never heard of that. So that's so yeah. the Crystal Calls. That's a series of novels, is what you're saying? Oh no, it's it's a documentary on Netflix that's about the making of this show. Oh right. Uh, no, I I I started watching it. Uh, I watched probably the first five ten minutes of it, but I have not unfortunately had the time to get through it all. But I'm that's definitely something I'm going to be watching. But that's a really interesting. They brought in a writer who writ, wrote some Dark Crystal novels to be a writer on the show, is what you're saying? Yeah, I forget the writer's name because the, the, the documentary focuses more on the puppetry and the design as opposed to mm-hmm. the narrative, which is a little bit disappointing because I'm all about story, but it was still really cool to see the, the sheer, you know, complexity of bringing mm-hmm. the show to life and how ambitious it was. And it really shows you, you know, that it was just such a labor of love, even if they don't go Truly. as much of the writing as I would have preferred. Truly. It seems amazing to me that Netflix decided to shell out the amount of money that would be needed for this season, you know. But now we don't know. Netflix has not announced yet whether they're going to renew it for second season. I would imagine they'll probably say they usually wait about four weeks after the release of a show, uh, which is about how much time they think it takes people to watch the whole season. But I would imagine we will hear, you know, by the end of this month, uh, September of 2019, whether it'll get a second season. And I would be surprised if it didn't uh, get renewed uh, at this point. Yeah, I would be very disappointed and I would uh, walk out in the world and Kind of look at everyone a little differently if this, if this show is not popular enough. It's like, what's wrong with you people? You know, and that's the thing, too. I mean, a lot of people might not really look back on the the movie. You know, if, if they never saw the movie, they might not care about the show. You know what I mean? Or some mm-hmm. of them may have not liked the movie. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I've heard, I haven't read a lot or seen a lot of reviews on the show, but all the ones I've seen, I haven't heard anything negative. All the ones I've seen are really stellar reviews. So, um, yeah. So, with that said, there is something that I wanted to talk about, and I might as well bring it up because I think it was Jess a minute ago who brought up this idea of canon between, you know, the different incarnations mm-hmm. of Dark Crystal stories and different media. And so this is literally the only criticism I have of the show, which may not be a criticism forever if they resolve it, but let's go. So I am a little confused about the events sort of at the beginning of known history in Thra because in the movie, you know, we find out in the movie that these uh, uber beings, these Urskaks came down and at some point they like experimented on the crystal and it split so that we have the crystal shard and then the crystal of truth becomes the dark crystal. Right, and then that's when they became separated into the Skeksis and the Mystics, right? But in the show, Algra was the protector of the crystal from the very beginning of time, apparently. And then the Skeksis came along and gave her the Orrery and convinced her to, like, go, you know, play with the Orrery and send her consciousness, like, out into the cosmos or whatever. 
while they protected, you know, quote unquote, protected the crystal. So I'm thinking, well, but the Skeksis didn't even exist until it cracked. And the oh, no, Earth the show, does, the show to... does clarify. The show does clarify that, that they split after she was sent out of the cosmos. Because basically the reason they wanted the crystal was because they wanted to remove their dark nature from themselves. And that's the experiments they were doing, which resulted in them splitting into separate beings. Okay. See, I yeah, must so have... You, uh... yeah. Yeah. yeah, what it's in, it's in the puppet scene. You know, they, they lay it out in the puppet scene that that's the order of events that happened. Man, I'm going to have to... You know what? I'm definitely... But the whole show's puppet scenes, man. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I'm definitely going back to watch it all over again because uh, my wife hasn't had a chance yeah. to actually watch it and she really wants to. So I'm just going to watch it with her again. So I'm sure that'll be clear. So, okay. So criticism tentatively erased uh, until I go back like and I see said, that for Jess, myself. But... Remember, mm. Jess, the show has no problems. <laughs> right. I, I do need to remember that. Well, I'm glad that you uh, reminded me of that because I must it must have like gone and like grabbed a cup of water or something during that exact moment. I don't know, but uh, it's good to know that they clarified that. Now, the other thing that I really liked about this show, uh, or that I thought was really smart, was that they really kept to the spirit of the original movie and not just in the fact that they did it as puppets, which was not always a sure thing, by the way. I mean, there had been for many years a plan to do a prequel show as an animated series, right? And even, you know, even Mm. in that documentary, like I said, I watched the first few minutes of that making of the Age of Resistance uh, documentary. Taron Edgerton said something to the effect of, you know, so often when a studio comes and revisits a beloved franchise, they end up, you know, twisting it here and tweaking it here for new audience and having new ideas here, and they end up discarding a lot of the things that the fans love so much about it. But in this case, they embraced all the things that the fans loved about it and what made it such a popular, you know, cult film, a classic cult film, but then they brought it to, like, the next level or maybe, like, two, two or three levels up, Right. So right. that was just really satisfying. I mean, when you watch the show, you are immersed in a world that is definitely the exact same world, you know, a little bit earlier, but the exact same one that we visited in the movie. And uh, I think that speaks volumes to the fact that it is such a labor of love uh, for everyone involved. I love that, you know, the the head designer is back, Brian Froud, and his uh, son, Toby Froud, who was the baby in uh, Labyrinth, uh, by the way, is is now the design supervisor for the for the show. So I think that's just one of those little, you know, behind the scenes things that I really appreciate that maybe not everybody knows, but not just in that, right? So there's echoes of the original movie in it, and that's in how I think the show is trying to keep true to some of the big themes in the movie, and they I think that like the heretic and his his uh, mystic, you know, other half at some point might even say this is like, it's sort of like unity versus division in a way. And the Gelflings, except right. except for a few Gelflings like Celadon and the Elmadra, who are sort of fooled by the Skeksis and, and in a way obligated by the system to kind of follow the Skeksis' commands and, and things, you know, ex- with those exceptions, the Gelflings are constantly unifying Right. Whereas the Skeksis are constantly, you know, breaking things apart. So just let me give you an example, a couple examples. So I think it was in episode two 
Rian's guard friend decides to come with him, and then he says, okay, together then. And that's that's a direct echo from that moment in the movie, right, mm-hmm. where, where Jen says, right. uh, when Kira decides to come with him, and he says, okay, together then. And then in episode nine, if you remember the scene where they're trying to escape the caves of the Groton because the Erethim have attacked. And then after that, those big, like, many-eyed worms who have been affected by the Darkening come and they just start tearing shit up. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, and they almost die. So Rian helps Deet's family get to the surface, and he, he physically carries her up and out of there when he knows that he's going to have to go back down in there anyways to find that glaive. Now, he ends up getting the glaive above ground, but he didn't know that at the time, right? Whereas if you contrast right. that to what the Skeksis are doing, they're trying to get what they want by killing, lying, oppressing, you know, divide. they're literally dividing the Gelflings from Thra by sucking out their essence and taking it into themselves, right? So I right. thought that it was nice that they were thematically consistent because I think it just connects it to the movie in a much more organic way. And, you know, frankly, those themes, I think they get a lot of use in stories over the ages because they're just, they just resonate with people. So what what do you think about that, Eric? And then Jess? Well, I like that you mentioned the Arathan because that was honestly one of my, one of the most pleasant surprises of the show because they introduced these this spider race known as the Arathan. They're these really intelligent arachnid-like creatures. And at first it looks like, you know, they're going to be your prototypical fantasy heavies. Because, you know, usually when it comes to mm-hmm. creatures like, you know, snakes or spiders, they're like automatically the bad guy. I mean, you could just, right. you know, just look at, you know, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, etc. They're always bad. And at first it looks like they're going to go that route in this show too which I was a little bit disappointed at because they introduced how they talk, how they have this kind of unified voice and how the spiders get together and form these giant faces. You know, like, that's such a cool... Yeah, that was crazy. ...cool visual sequence. I'm like, man, I like these guys, and they're going to make them bad because they're spiders and they have to be bad. <laughs> and then... Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it's revealed that, no, the, the Skeksis are taking advantage of them just like they are the Gelflings. Exactly, and when, exactly. And when Rian and when Rian and Deed explain that, the, the Arathen are like, you know what, we're, we're with you guys. We're mm-hmm. with you guys. And they become, they join the heroes. And I'm like, thank you. Because the idea of um, making, you know, creatures like that automatically bad and just like across the board bad is to me a contradiction of the themes of unity that the show was espousing and that they actually went that and that they went that extra mile and said no the arathan can and are good too in spite of their appearances i'm like good you see there you're really exploring that theme because you're taking something that an audience is automatically going to be biased against and telling them to give it another look. It's not just telling the characters to give each other another look. It's telling the audience themselves to give the world another look and not make assumptions about it. I think the Arathim, too, are a really um, a really strong symbol of this whole theme of, of unity because they're literally a group mind. <laughs> I mean, they are one, you know. So yeah, I think it mind. is definitely appropriate that they took that step to, you know, not make them, you know, automatically this villainous, you know, race that everybody should be scared of. So, yeah, I agree. So, Jess, what do you think about all this? Yeah, that's a real interesting take on the Arathim. I didn't really, 
think about before just right this moment. But yeah, they are introduced and you just envision them as, you know, top of the food chain, apex predator. And when they are down in the caverns and they join together with their hive mind and start speaking, that's when you're like, oh, wow. And you're taken aback. And it really goes to show, you know, the thought they put into all the different races and different creatures on the planet. And these are an intelligent race, which isn't something you would ever think of something that's basically a big spider, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of people like my daughter walked in when the Arathim were attacking and she was like, Oh my God, nope, nope, nope. And she noped right back upstairs. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was real cool. Cool take on that with those guys. Um, one thing I was expecting to see more of was the mystics. They didn't really explore them at all. I'm cool with that though, because you know, in the movie it's established and even in that story that the heretic and, and his mystic tell uh, the, the mystics are in hiding until, you know, the appointed day. And so I yeah. wasn't too, I didn't actually expect them to, to get much into the mystics, but I am glad that they had a couple of them uh, in the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they will as the story unfolds. But it, it was cool seeing with the Skeksis how they each have their own, you know, their basically title is their name. You know, the scientist, the Chamberlain, and they all have their different roles they do. And uh, it would have been cool. And like I said, they'll probably get into it in the future. Mm-hmm. But to see on the opposite end of the spectrum uh, what the mystics have going on. Yeah. Because they each kind of have their own twin you know, mm-hmm. opposite ends, yin and yang going on there. Yeah. Well, on that note, I wanted to talk a little bit about the characters in this show. So the the main characters mm-hmm. that we have are Rian, uh, voiced by Taron Edgerton. And he's the, uh, well, if, you know, if you're in the spoiler part, I'm sure you know who he is. But he was originally the castle guard of the Stonewood clan. Uh, we have Brea, who is voiced by Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, the youngest Gulfling princess of the Vapra clan. And uh, Deet, voiced by Natalie Emmanuel, uh, the Gelfling animal caretaker of the Groton clan. And then, of course, there's Elgra, uh, voiced by Donna Kimball, keeper of secrets, the embodiment of the planet Thra, and an astronomer. So, yeah. and then, of course, there's She just... was great in the show, too. Yeah, oh, she she's was. wonderful. Yeah, she's great. But I think, so, I think it... she, was the, she was the one character in the movie that I felt had a lot of personality. And she has even more personality in the movie it's it's amazing <laughs> yeah right yeah and she's so consistent she's so you know remarkably consistent i mean you know she's obviously grown a little bit by the time we get to the movie and and you know worn down a little bit more and god knows what happens to that gold like third eye in her head by the time we get to the movie uh <laughs> but uh yeah. but you know that was uh that was pretty amazing so why don't we just talk about the characters? Jess, what are your thoughts about the characters? And, and you know, do you have any favorites? Which ones were the most compelling to you, etc.? I thought, like I said earlier, I mean, the acting was phenomenal. It's just a great cast overall. I really can't think of any characters that I didn't think were portrayed, you know, decently. I thought they were all uh, fantastic uh, portrayals. And... It was just cool to get to know them. You know, it's like Eric said, in the movie, you have the characters, but you don't really know much about them. It's basically just connect the dots, follow the story, and here you go. But in this, you really 
get a, a sense of the people and how they act and how they interact with other people. And you really, really struck me as just well written overall. I liked Rian. Uh, Deet was cool, especially by the end in the last episode. I don't know what makes her different from the others where she could uh, absorb the power like she did. But uh, I think it was just uh, the fact that the the tree tree chose to give it to her. Yeah, that's all. Okay. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool, that scene there. But uh yeah, I think my favorite would have been those two and Ogre. And then in the uh Skeksis, you know, you gotta love the Chamberlain, because he's a little weasel. And uh <laughs> I thought uh what was the the big uh military guy, the general? The general. He was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked him. And I liked the scene where, where he's peeing. In the corner, and then we find, he's got like we three find, streams of pee. <laughs> we find out that uh, Skeksis either have three penises or three pee holes or both. Who knows? Yeah, it's I best not to speculate too, penis on a too much on that. Like. Yeah. <laughs> so on that note, Eric, what were your thoughts about the characters? Well, I know that I mean the three the three central characters of Rian. Uh, what's the princess's name again? It's like Bria. Brea. Yeah. Brea. Brea. You have Rian, you have Brea, and you have Deet. I mean, they were a great, you know, kind of trifecta ensemble with their own kind of little satellite characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I know out of out of the three, I thought I, I like Deet the most. You know, I like characters that are tied to yeah. nature. I thought her design was cool with kind of like the really wide, you know, irises and pupils. I thought that was a really mm-hmm. terrific look. Like, I don't know why people don't like the Groton clan. I think they're awesome. <laughs> Agreed. Like, yeah. uh, Agreed. <laughs> and um and and then of course you have you know Hup he was a great kind of side character Lore yeah, yeah. another another terrific side character Lore and I loved Lore Rhea. the the stone golem guy yeah yeah who, who I, yeah. I'm pr- I'm pretty sure it's the same golem from Galaxy Quest you know the fir- the first thing I saw, <laughs> first, the first thing I saw I'm like wow it's good to see Garignac has work again these days I was wondering what's <laughs> <Right>. happening with <laughs> but, uh, and then of course and then of course Rian is terrific you know he has a I think he's the character we're the most sympathetic with because he's the one who suffers the most. I mean, his love yeah. interest gets killed. His love interest gets killed horribly in the first episode. His own father, you know, not only doesn't respect him, but doesn't believe him initially, you know, when the story comes out. Mm-hmm. He's branded a liar. He is shunned, yeah. accused of doing these horrible things. So we really relate to this this underdog character, and it makes us want to see him succeed because we see mm-hmm. him suffer so much. I know easily my favorite characters are are the heretic and Ergo the Wanderer. Those two had me on the floor. They were so funny. <laughs> and again, that and again yeah. that was another you know that was another good uh, that was another good uh, point of the show's favor in that they at least had one Skeksy who wasn't a bad guy. The heretic was a bad guy, but he's working to redeem himself. And you, and that again mm-hmm. goes to the point of the show of like don't don't rope this don't rope you know everybody into this one group of bad people because skexies skexies are still capable of goodness if they work at it and the heretic is definitely one who's uh, worked at it probably because he does a lot of drugs (laughs) right and he was exiled (laughs) so there's that too i like the scientist as well yeah you know one of the things uh one of the things about uh this show is has such an amazing voice cast. I mean, the 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 pup the performers of the puppets are equally amazing. Uh, it's just that um, 
you know, we don't get to hear their voices. Uh, we see what they're doing. Right. And, uh, you know, they're not going to have as, like, widely recognizable names. But first of all, yeah, let me give props to all of the uh, puppet performers because I'll tell you what, how amazing is it at, that you can watch, uh, you know, 10 hours of puppets and, like, start to identify with puppets and sympathize with them yeah. and empathize with them. I mean, it's amazing. So, but, yeah, I really loved all these uh, characters and they kept it so entertaining. Thoughts on Deet, though. I really love Deed as well, and you know I have this feeling that she might end up suffering more than the other three in her in the main trifecta in the second series, just based on how things ended in this season. Right. But you know, she to me was more equivalent to uh, Jen, the male Gelfling in the movie, just in the sense that she was sort of the least worldly, you know, and the least experienced sort of young person in the group. Whereas you had Rian. Right, because she was never above ground. She was kept below ground. She forever. was never above ground. She was still sort of, you know, in the adolescent sort of phase of her life in a way. At least it seemed that way. Right. The little time that we got from her down, you know, down in the caves. Whereas Rian's already a guard and, you know, he has a, a girlfriend and uh, Brea is a princess and, you know, she's exposed to the court and, you know, all of these other things. I mean, they're all, you know, young you know, inexperienced uh, characters, but I just thought, uh, you know, the comparison to Deet uh, with Jen was really interesting because there was a scene where they get up on a Landstrider for the first time, and, like, she has almost the exact same reaction as Jen to the Landstriders uh, in the movie. It's like she doesn't know what they are. She's right. scared as, like, how to get up on one. So before we talk about the end of the series and kind of wrap up, I wanted to ask you, too, what other aspects of the show you wanted to get into and talk about so why don't we start with eric oh there there are so many so many good ones <laughs> i uh i do yeah. think i do think one of the central themes of the show is that you know the elders should put more trust into the youth because that, that mm. that's kind of like a, that's kind of like a big theme i mean you have uh you have rian and his dad not trusting him and then you have uh, Bria and her mother, the All Madra, not trusting her. And right, I mean, it 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 ends up being nothing but bad for you know the elders because you know the the youth are more you know curious, they're more inquisitive, they're more interested in breaking traditions and trying new things. And the, they're also the adults, more interested in looking at the reasons for things and you know why things are set up the way that they are, and they're more prone to saying, wait things don't have you know things can be better than this like why can't we just at least try it yeah whereas the adults are just like you know this is the way things are don't muck it up because change is scary and i think you yeah, know i think that's it ain't an, broke don't fix it well even though it very obviously is broken <laughs> so, right exactly yeah <laughs> but uh but i think that's definitely a, a very interesting theme that the show has it's a very timely theme agreed and and, and it's a, and it's a very universal one it's one of that was actually one of the the themes that I enjoyed most about the original Star Wars trilogy, because that is the whole relationship between Luke and Darth Vader. I love that comparison to Star Wars because, you know, George Lucas has said so many times that basically the basic story of Star Wars is that there are selfish people and there are selfless people, right? And if you let the selfish people take too much control, things can get really, really bad. And I feel like... 
that sort of element is present in Age of Resistance uh, to an extent, because what are the Skeksis if not selfish? What are the mystics right. if not selfless, you know? I mean, the Erg Skeks basically removed everything bad from themselves, but they created these entities that are, with very rare exception, capable of being nothing but bad, because that's what they are. They are, they are the dark, you know, they are the dark nature that was sitting inside the Erg Skeks. They are the, they are the id, they are the subconscious, they are the primitive materialistic aspects of themselves that, you know, they didn't that they you know they put away from themselves but they but in doing so they gave it they gave it agency to wreak so much destruction on the world of thra rather than learning to you know understand their dark nature and perhaps even gain some wisdom from their past mistakes you know which mm -hmm. i think is another which i think is another interesting theme that's explored more deeply in the show because one of the mm -hmm. big disappointments i had about the film was that this whole kind of like dual nature between the mystics and the and the skexies wasn't really fully explored like like each you know character of the skexies had to have a counterpart of some kind which is shown and what would those counterparts be like and how would they interact with each other and how mm -hmm. would this idea of the two like being physically intertwined how could that play into the story because in the movie it doesn't it's just like a little visual moment that happens but the show right. really delves into it and really kind of explores it like you see the the stark differences but also the the disturbing similarities between the archer and the hunter the hunter which of mm -hmm. course i think the hunter is the scariest character on that show that guy is scary <laughs> right uh, yeah yeah he was cool and and the archer is you know this kindly wise figure and and they they really bring in the whole the whole idea of them being physically intertwined so beautifully when the archer commits suicide in order to save Rian from getting killed by the hunter. The hunter's literally about to kill Rian. Mm -hmm. The archer knows this and he throws himself off a cliff, thereby, you know, committing this valiant act of self-sacrifice that destroys the hunter and frees Rian at that pivotal moment. And that's the kind of stuff I really, really wanted to see in the movie when they kind of, you know, started to explain that idea. Yeah, two things. Right. So, a this is um, this is to me uh, an example of the power that stories can have to convey important truths to us, right? Because the you know the 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 thing with telling a fictional story is you're trying to get at truth through things that you make up, right? It's like getting to truth through right. lies, and that's one of the things that's always really fascinated me about stories. And the other thing is, you know, what you just explained, Eric, the fact that they were able to delve into all these different aspects of the world and of, you know, how the characters work and, and, and all of this is, it makes me so glad that they didn't make another movie but opted for a show instead because then you get all of this time to really get into that stuff and, and develop it in, in the most satisfying way. So, you know, I'm right. I'm really glad that that was the direction that they went with it cuz easily they could have decided to spend, you know, less money and just make one movie. And I'm really glad that they uh did this right. It makes you wonder if 
the fact that the original was just a 90 minute movie was what hurt it and maybe if it was mm-hmm. a miniseries they could have explored the world and the characters more but they had to explain so much in such a short period of time that 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 might have actually right. shot the original in the foot and there, and there are other it, elements about the film sorry i think it did shoot it in the foot to an extent because you know especially with a fantasy story where you have to explain at least some things or else everybody's just going to be lost right <laughs> So they, right. you know, they, their hand was kind of forced in that sense. So that, that's an interesting observation. There was another part of the movie, which, which I actually, I'm not going to lie. I hated this part, but then they did something really interesting with it in the movie that kind of made me look at it again. It was in the original film when, uh, the girl's name in, in the original is Kyla, right? Kira. It's Kira. Kira. Okay. Kira. So it's Jen and Kira when they first touch hands and they do the dream fasting thing. Oh yeah. And they kind of like have those visions of each other's past, which is something that never is brought up again in the movie. Like in the movie, it's just another info dump. And <laughs> yeah, it's a bit right. it's a bit better than some of the other info dumps, because at least this one they they try to do something visual with it, but they mm-hmm. don't weave it into the rest of the story. Like there's never a moment when dream fasting comes back into play at say a critical moment when the two like need to share a memory that allows them to defeat a task, say. Right, and right. that's and that's yeah. what they do here. Because Rian, having witnessed Mira getting murdered, now has this memory that he can share with people and that he can convince mm-hmm. people with. And then the Skeksis have to try and convince other Gelflings, no, do not, do not touch this guy's hand. It's diseased. It'll kill you. It'll do something bad. But in truth, doing so is what brings them enlightenment and allows them to see the truth of what the Skeksis are. And that's another example of something right. that, honestly, in the film, I thought was very clumsily delivered. And when they were doing it in the, in the show, I'm like, uh, not this thing again. But then they started doing something interesting with it. And I'm like, wait a minute, this, this is actually a cool thing they're doing with this dream fasting deal here. I'm engaged now. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome when they, uh, Ogre got them together and, and brought them all into that chamber you know, like her, the dream chamber or whatever, and got all, all the people from the different clans, you know, they sent the, the dream fast out to them somehow, like with the images, uh, that was cool. How they got the message out to all the different clans, almost like signal fires, you know? Well, that was was when he, that was when he assembled the glaive and then it's magic caused like all the fires to be connected. And then they kind of told everybody. Yeah. Uh, that that was pretty yeah. cool. I I mean, it's there's such, and I love how the you know the whole like a lot of tropes of like the great you know epic fantasy quest are in there, you know where they have to get these magical objects and all this. It was just it was just so well uh, weaved together. Yeah. So so they all band together and form the fellowship of the shard. I definitely do think there there are some other things worth discussing. You know, I definitely would like to mm-hmm. talk about the Skeksis and one of the more interesting characters on the show, which was Celadon and her character arc, because that That's was a really exactly what I was going to get to. Yeah. I, so so let's talk about Celadon because this this kind of plays into our discussion about the characters in a way that you know they were not afraid to dig deep on these characters. They were not. I mean, no. so Celadon is, uh, just to remind anybody who may not uh, know all the names off the top of your head, she was the sister of Brea, who was next in line to be the Almadra. And she really wanted to be a, the Almadra to the point where she yeah. really, I mean, she bought into this system that the Skeksis had created 
to the extent that she was willing to give up her own family to go along with it. So, so why don't you, what, what are your comments on Celadon, Eric? What I think Celadon is, you know, she is that, you know, traditionalist view held by a lot of the Gelflings, you know, taken to its natural conclusion, which leads to nothing but the destruction of, you know, her, her humanity, which thankfully she gets back. I was really happy that she mm-hmm. does, she is able to turn a new leaf, but for, for such a long period of the show, she is going to some very dark and cruel places because she's in such denial that this system yeah. that has granted her so much privilege is destroying the things she loves to exactly. the point that she's trying to the point that she's trying to say no no wait it's the people i love they're the ones that are wrong because she doesn't mm-hmm. want to believe that this thing is bad because that would mean she would have to do something about it again very timely and it's incredibly hard to take a look at something that has benefited you so much and in her case was going to make her like basically queen of everybody right and to say, oh, well, that's the way this works is wrong. And, you know, we got that front and center with Celadon. And and by the way, you know, you mentioned that eventually she was able to kind of, you know, come around and redeem herself a bit. But by the way, that was hard one. It wasn't just like, you know, she sat down and read a book and thought, oh, I've been wrong this whole time. Let me go help my sister. No, she had to go through some really awful shit before she was finally able to admit to herself that, that, you know, that the way that things have been going is not good. Like she does some awful shit and he's even considering Mm -hmm. doing awful shit. And to the point that she's making excuses for the thing that, you know, she initially says, Oh no, they're not draining essence. It's all a lie. And when Mm -hmm. they admit to her that, you know, we're doing it, you know, that's totally what's going on. She again tries to rationalize it because she because she doesn't want to give up this worldview she has because it, it's just too painful and scary to change. It's more easy mm-hmm. for her to accept, you know, what this thing is than to say, you know, we need to go through a change. And you know, she denies she denies so much she denies so much empirical evidence. She even burns her own mother's body out of spite, which she can never yeah. undo. Yeah, and that was. It was it's a show about puppets, and this is like, it's Game of Thrones with puppets. That's what Celadon's story is. It's Game of Thrones with puppets. Right. Totally. It totally is, yeah. This is some Westeros shit going on. Yeah. Now, as a transition from our talk about Celadon to uh, talking about the Skeksis, now that you mentioned that scene where she's talking to them, and they, you know, they admit to her that uh, they are actually doing this. And, you know, she keeps just progressively going through, like, the different ways that she will keep going along with it, right? She's like, well, okay, right. obviously they have to be punished, and, you know, we'll give you the 12 Gelflings or the 6 Gelflings or whatever you, you know, wanted until, you know, finally they basically say they're going to kill everyone, uh, and she kind of runs out in horror, or she gets, they, do they lock her up at that point? Uh, but I, I thought, even though that scene is in a way very disturbing there's also humor in it because like every time she was asking them for something the emperor would just say no and then they would all laugh at her and it just got to the point (laughs) where where they were just having way too much fun with it and you know you kind of laugh but at the same time inside you're like cringing for her because you know that this is not going to end well so jess what are your thoughts on that scene and then and then let's talk about the skexies yeah that was pretty cool um the one thing about the sisters and them being imprisoned, I forgot there was a third sister until that scene where they were, they caught, uh, 
Brea and I can't remember who all was with her, but they threw him down in the dungeons. Mm-hmm. And then her other sister, whose name I can't Tavra. even remember, was in the other cabaret. Yeah, and, you know, that's when I was like, and who's that? And my son's like, that's her other sister. I was like, oh, totally forgot about her. They didn't really do much with her. That was cool when they were down there. And after uh, Celadon finds out she's been lied to all along and turns to the light side, as they say. Um ish it was a cool transition she doesn't even she doesn't even make that turn right away either i mean but because when they bring in brea oh she's like in denial well she yeah i mean she's still reeling from all this stuff but she's yeah she still is in denial because if you remember that scene where they bring in brea and celadon is there well once they're both in in jail and sort of like cells across from each other celadon Mm -hmm. is still blaming brea for everything right right you know, and she still thinks in that moment that everything would still be hunky-dory if Bray hadn't, you know, opened her book and, you know, pushed for this and upset the Skeksis in that way and, like, all of this stuff. So, yeah, it just goes to show that they did not take any shortcuts with the character development in this show, and it is it is a wonder to behold. So Yeah, um, they did a great job. So what do you have to say? Uh, what are your introductory comments about the Skeksis, Eric? What do you have to say about them? Oh, they're definitely definitely much better developed than they were in the movie where in the movie they were just kind of gross <laughs> but in this one they in this one they give them all you know distinct and wonderful personalities simon Pegg is fantastic as as skexel the chamberlain and the chamberlain who i oh, yeah who i consider the main villain of the show like he's definitely mm-hmm. much yeah. more a significant a much more significant character than the emperor like the emperor is just the one who's kind of like on the throne but skexel is the one who's kind of manipulating these events and moving them forward i believe yes. it's he who suggests to the scientists that he's, they he's grim a worm tongue yeah like i believe it's him who suggests to the scientists that they find a way to drain the gelfling essence yep. which is what kicks off the whole plot of the show yep and you know he he kind of like he keeps doing these things that snowball that have a snowball effect that really you know right completely completely wreck this world and Mm. you know peg delivers such a deliciously slimy performance he really (laughs) really vanishes into that character i didn't even know that was simon peg until i watched the until i watched the crystal calls it's amazing what what he and and all the actors are able to do i mean the the list of actors that they have voicing these characters is amazing so let's let's let me just list a couple of them okay so uh eddie izzard is uh is one of the gelflings kadia a member of the sifa clan you got helena bonham Mm -hmm. carter as the almadra you have Shazad Latif as uh, Kylan, song teller of the Spriten clan. You have um, Lena Hetty as Madra Farah, the rock singer, leader of the Stonewood clan. That was Lena Hetty. Natalie Dormer as Annika. And, of course, Taryn Edgerton as Rhea. Who was Annika? Annika was a member of the Sifa clan. Wait a minute. Wasn't she the girlfriend that died in the beginning? Or no? No, that was... Let's look it up. name was Mira. See, I thought originally Mira was going to be Kira's mom. You know? Well, I don't... I mean, I think there's a few generations between this show and the movie. Because yeah. it's like 50 years. Yeah. You know? Um, don't. But don't, who knows? Don't know their lifespan I think and stuff. Kira, I think Kira's probably going to be more closely related to Deet. Because I think yeah. 
you know, yeah. Kira being able to communicate with animals, that's kind of what Deet gets after she communes with the tree. So I think I think that's what how that's going to come into play, is Deet's going to yeah. pass that on yeah. to Kira. Now, speaking of the Skeksis, though, I, I agree they were definitely more fleshed out, uh, so to speak. They're, they had the opportunity to become much more well-developed over the course of this 10-episode season, and I really dug that. And they were very distinct you know, oh, and I, I meant to say uh, Mark Hamill was the scientist. That's uh, the scientist. So yeah. there's that. But they were, it was cool to see the emperor, you know, when he was alive, because as we know, at the beginning of the movie, he just crumbles away to dust. And so it's it's in, it was interesting to me to get a sense of what their sort of like mini society was like when they were at the height of their power, which is basically how the show opens is they're they're at the you know the height of their power right before they get to the point where they're just going to try and kill all the Gelflings. And just that was just fascinating to me in a story sense because the movie, you know, as a kid always just fired my imagination. And I have to say, I'm very impressed that now that I am an adult with a cold, cynical heart of stone, that uh, <laughs> the show was able to elicit that same sort of wonder and just really stimulate my imagination and get me thinking about things. Um, I thought they were completely vile, disgusting, wonderful creatures. <laughs> like, like you mentioned, they really fleshed out all their different personalities. And who was the, the female? I, I'm assuming it was female. The one with the bulbous crap on her you nose that kept pussing and stuff talking like this. she was yeah, yeah <laughs> she was hilarious and i loved what they did with her pus that was some good cringe-worthy scenes this used um, to be a i think probably my favorite face. aside from the chamberlain <laughs> would be uh the scientist oh uh, that was, was uh the cool. that was the collector who was played by aquafina mm. okay american actress and rapper aquafina She's in Ocean's 8, Crazy Rich Agents, and uh, apparently got a lot of critical praise for her performance in The Farewell, which I have not seen. Hmm. But yeah, she was she was good comedic relief and just disgustingness. I like that. <laughs> and she exploded. That was great. That yeah, was great. that part. She goes, <laughs> that was awesome. It's like she gets zapped, then she goes, oh, that wasn't so bad. And then boom, she just yeah. explodes. You just got of scanners, yeah. dead. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of great voice actors for the Skeksis too. Jason Isaacs is the Emperor. Simon Pegg is the Chamberlain, like we mm -hmm. said. Uh, the General's played by Benedict Wong, who of course was Wong in Avengers Endgame and right. Infinity War. Uh, Ralph Innocent is the Hunter. Andy Samberg is the Heretic. Keegan Michael Key as the Ritual Master, the High Priest guy. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the uh, the Wanderer, who's the Mystic who met up with Agra at the at the the mm -hmm. sanctuary tree is Bill Hader. Yeah, it's Bill Hader. Bill mm -hmm. Hader. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Such so, a wonderful um, cast. Yeah, I mean, as far as the Skeksis are concerned, I just think that they are exceptional villains. Now, an antagonist doesn't always have to be a villain, but in this case, they're both. But I just think they are just deliciously evil, awful villains that yeah. that you love to hate. At least, like, I love exactly. to hate the Skeksis, right? You don't always get a villain that you love to hate. You might just hate them and, you know, not even want to see their face. And while the Skeksis are pretty darn gross, you know, once you start watching and you get sucked in, 
my suspension of disbelief was never broken. You know, I was able yeah. to be sucked into this show every single scene, every single minute, and it was it was just one of the greatest TV experiences that I've had in the past couple of years, I I think. Yeah, and it felt so fresh because it was all puppetry. Like I said earlier, they hardly use any CGI and it's just you're just watching it and it's a normal scene like them running from here to there in any other show you'd be like okay so they're running in this it's like wow they're little puppets running and they actually had to have people you know <laughs> doing all that and it's it's so fun and it's it makes it more exciting to watch it because you know there's literally people behind the scenes pulling strings and it makes it more enjoyable speaking of the cgi i i think and i didn't like double check this but i'm pretty sure that the skeksis tongues were all cgi oh yeah th- those definitely <laughs> yeah. were those definitely <laughs> were added afterwards yeah yeah but I, that's the thing i didn't even notice that until like episode seven i was like wait a second <laughs> You know, their tongues are all CGI. And, and then, I know, don't mind that at all. Have to I just they have to be. I just kind of noticed it and I was like, that's funny that, you know, if that's the only thing they have to use like an actual CGI model on and like insert into the movie, that's so impressive. You know? It's a good example of, right. of using CG to augment an already impressive visual effect instead of just mm-hmm. doing it as an entire digital effect. Because had they done these characters as CG, I don't think it would have been nearly as strong. You would have lost so much of those wonderful performances by the puppeteers. Right. I think so, yeah. And all yeah. that great work by the creature shop. Because originally they were, I think, planning on doing a CG show. I think they mentioned that in uh, the Crystal Calls. But like somebody... You know, all credit to them really pushed for the ideas like maybe, you know, the best way to pay tribute to Jim Henson's legacy would be to give this puppetry, you know, back to the world in a time when it had been, yeah. you know, you know, almost lost. The whole art of it had been almost lost. Yeah. And the show has and brought thank it God. back yeah. in such a wonderful way. Yeah. So uh, with all that said, do you guys have any other comments about this before we move on to talk about, I want to talk about the end of the season uh, in that final episode and then kind of sum up uh, and finish up. Just real quick, you know, on the, on the Skeksis, you know, I uh, normally, normally I would be very against, you know, characters being, you know, cartoonishly evil for evil's sake. But in the context (laughs) of this series, given that they are everything that was bad, removed from the Ergskex and Ergskex and made it real makes in the sense flesh. right it, it makes sense and one like it and actually the thing makes that drives sense. them the thing that mm-hmm. drives them is actually a very relatable motivation they're afraid to die they're afraid mm-hmm. of their mortality they're right. afraid of the unknown so they 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 selfishly hoard life from everyone else and that on some level brings you to a certain level of understanding of what they're running from which I thought was terrific. And of course, the performances by everybody were just, you know, beyond the pale. And I think the the part of the show that I was the most, not necessarily sympathetic to them, but the moment when I got it, I believe it's when um, the Emperor and the General, you know, they take a look at the darkening and the Emperor reveals that that's that's what the Skeksis are all about. They're afraid to die. And their Mm -hmm. fear of death is thoroughly destructive to the world of Thra. Yeah. And, and, and as I think, long as they get to live, they don't care. Yeah. And I and I think that's another good message of the show because it shows how destructive a fear of death can be. 
because that's what powers the villains is fear of their own mortality rather than accepting their mortality like the mystics do and looking on, uh, looking to the unknown right. with curiosity and maybe even hope instead of fear and dread yeah i mean every time i peel back a layer of the onion on this i just see how incredibly well thought out and incredibly well crafted the entire story and the entire presentation of it just every single aspect of it and that's why i think it does deserve 10 out of 10 uh uncorrupted luminous crystals of truth out of 10 so let's talk about the ending oh sure in that, that final episode i'm just going to read this really brief synopsis from wikipedia <laughs> okay so the name of the episode is a single piece was lost Rian and Deet are joined by Brea's group while waiting for the other clan's arrival. Skexo calls upon the Darkening before leading the Skeksis to battle, ordering Skektek to remain at the castle to work on the new army. Once the Skeksis arrive, Skexil sets up Skekvar to fail in his duel with Rian and covertly kills him as the battle commences. Skekmal is revealed to be alive as he shatters the duel glaive, only to be killed for good when Urva jumps off from the Circle of Suns, causing Algra to be reconstituted. When the other clans arrive, Skexo unleashes the Darkening, which Deet rebounds to destroy Skeklok while the other Skeksis retreat. As Brea finds the lost shard of the crystal in the dual glaive's broken hilt, Deet leaves the group in fear of her power. While events in Stone in the Wood unfold, Skektek kills the rebelling Grunax in a moment of frustrated rage. An inspired Skektek then grafts a dead Grunak with the Erethem corpses with the Skeksis introduced to the newly animated Garthim. So that sort of hmm. summarizes really briefly the, uh, the final episode. This was an episode that just didn't let up. You know, there was right. no slow part of this episode where you're just, like, waiting for it to get to the good part. Not that I can even remember a moment like that in any of the episodes, but I think it was just a really effective climax, I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it also came at great cost to the heroes. It wasn't like mm -hmm. they won and everything's fine now and the Skeksis are never going to bother them again or something like that, you know. Just to give the biggest example, I mean, Deet is now sort of like pulsing with this darkening energy that she doesn't know what to do with and it almost looks like she can't keep it from overtaking her or something she's got like those purple glowy veins going through her her eyes right. are like purple she looks really sad you know and i think the end of it was a little bit ambiguous in terms of whether rian was just going to let her go or not but he did watch her walk away and sort of the entire forest like shrivel up around her passing yeah, she walled herself off, you know. So there's, you know, obviously a lot of room here for more seasons between that and, you know, the beginning of the, the movie. But I'm wondering how you guys, first, how you felt at the end. Like, what did this episode make you feel by the time, you know, throughout and then by the time you finished watching it? And then after you talk about that, can you just talk about, you know, the implications of this ending and any other thoughts you have. So let's start with Jess. Like you said, this episode and even all the rest, like you mentioned earlier, like you never got bored. You never fell asleep. You never, you know, lost interest. I was the same way. We were usually watching it two episodes a night, my son and I, and we decided to do episode nine and 10 on the last night. And we were just totally sucked in and the final confrontation between the Gelflings and the Skeksis, you know, obviously 
the Skeksis show up and they're way overpowered. And you think you're going to see the Gelflings get their little butts beat. And then, of course, all the tribes and stuff that they contacted earlier gather and, you know, back them all up. But that was just a, a cool battle between the two. You know, seeing them in action and they're, the women are flying around dropping rocks and stuff. <laughs> right. and, or the bombs that they made. Right. Uh, that was a cool part. And uh, even in that fight, you can see on the Skeksis, you know, they're still fighting amongst themselves for power. And it's mostly the Chamberlain. That is a great observation that even in the midst of, you know, this big new, probably the biggest threat they've ever had to face since, you know, they came to Thra, they're still infighting and like literally killing each other, you know? Yeah. It just goes to show that they can't escape their nature. It was great. And after uh, Rion injures the general and he wanders off, then uh, the Chamberlain goes and, Mm -hmm. you know, basically murders him. Mm -hmm. He's, He's still trying to climb... Climb the ladder of power, and that was cool. Yeah, but that that was great, and the whole thing with uh, Deet, where she comes in, and you know summons all the power of the darkening and blasts, uh, what's her face with it? That was awesome. And then she's like, "Oh, that wasn't so bad." And then she, I'm interested you know, in I'm interested in what your son's reaction was because, like you said, he seems to really enjoy it a lot. And you know, I'm just kind of trying to think of, of how I would have reacted if I had a chance to see this when I was a kid. So, like, was there any particular moment that was fun to see him react to, or you know, do you have any big reactions, or what was it like? There, uh, there was there was so many because it was, we were both just enthralled by the show. And, you know, he had kind of a mediocre reaction to the movie. But even before we started, when he found out Dark Crystal Age Resistance was on, he was like, oh, let's watch it. He was excited to watch it. And it's like, mm. I was kind of caught caught off guard because he didn't seem that thrilled with the, the movie. But the whole show, I mean, there was just so many moments. We were like looking at each other and being, oh, my God. You know, he really loved it and... He said, this is crazy. And I think it was like episode four. He's like, oh, this is starting to get deep, you know. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he's like, oh, this is dark. This is dark. You know? <laughs> it is. So it was really cool to experience it through him, mm-hmm. you know, while also experiencing it for myself. That's great. No, it was great. And real quick, after the fight and all that, they did a great job of leaving us with base- basically two cliffhangers. You know, the first being Deet and her going off and secluding herself in the wood where she's probably going to come back as Deet the White, uh, similar to Gandalf <laughs> right. in Lord of the Rings. But then also they finally unveil something I've really been excited to see, and that's the Garthen. Right. You know, I just loved because I knew like episode six or seven, the scientists said, I'm starting to figure it out and building a creature. And I was like, oh, boy. I was hoping to see them, but I think ending with the reveal of them was just perfect. Yeah, that was a great little tie-in. So, Eric, how did this final episode, and you know, particularly the end of the final episode of this season, hit you emotionally? And what what are your other thoughts about the ending? Well, I mean, as far as you know, Deet summoning the power of the darkening, I'd again love to compliment the show's writing because it's so well foreshadowed and explained beforehand. Mm-hmm. Because the tree explains to her that the darkening is an energy, and it can, and an energy like it cannot be destroyed; it can only be contained and redirected. So, her in an effort to kind of like 
cleanse this world has started to absorb this horrible thing into herself and it's eating her and that's like such a mm -hmm. such a deeply unsettling and very sad thing to to think about and you know as she was my favorite of the of the leads you know to see her kind of go off like that it was very bittersweet because they did win this battle mm -hmm. but you know you you look at that and you're reminded of how things turn out in the movie how the gelfling seemingly get wiped out you know i mean i do believe in the in the world of the film there's definitely more than those two but the the gelfling Agreed, are yeah. definitely not they're definitely not what they used to be and like it was almost like you know it's this hopeful moment but it kind of reminds you it's like the end of the terminator there's a storm coming in i know mm -hmm. you know this was kind of like the terminator right. moment the t1 moment from uh <laughs> from the this particular this uh this world and uh, I think the the reveal of the Gartham kind of solidified that because then you remember how yeah. bad the world got in the movie, and it's such a bitter. It's about moment. to get a lot worse. It's about to get a lot worse. I mean, honestly, I'm gonna say this. I really hope that if they continue the show, that they that they actually transform the the film and its characters into elements of the show and kind of reimagine them with this new writing team because i think the new yeah. writing team here would be able to do such a great service to what the original film attempted to do and mm -hmm. didn't ultimately do as well as the show did i i think that i would, would, be I would really love cool to, to see that to in see fact again. i would love it if the very end of the you know the the series on netflix somehow gets into you know the times like immediately before the film starts you know where maybe we even get to see jen and kira although you know not as old as as they end up being in the show like something like that i i i think has the potential to be really good in this show uh and i do have an incredible amount of faith in those writers i mean after watching this season so i agree with you there yeah as far as the ending went you know it uh it it was it was very bittersweet. It was very bittersweet because it was good to see the characters get this one win in, even though you know it it ends with it ends you know on such a dreadful note, but ultimately a satisfying and appropriate one. And it really goes to show that I mean, right? Shows like this that are you know largely aimed at families, they don't have to patronize. They can go into those dark places and still leave an audience feeling satisfied because Jess, I take it at the end of the show, your son wasn't upset by the ending, like that he was still satisfied with how it went. Oh yeah. He loved it. And he's like, okay, when's the next season? <laughs> it's like, nobody knows. Better be soon. Though. Now, it's good that we still know from the movie that things ultimately do turn out. Okay. That the Gelfling reunite the crystal and the Urgskeks are reconstituted and the world is able to start over again. But, you know, to, to look on that, you know, that long, dark road that's going to lead to that point, you know, I think is I think is going to be a, a really fascinating journey if we're ever able to see it. And, you know, again, I really do hope that we do get to see, you know, the 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 characters from the original film, you know, given given an upgrade, you know, with this new writing team, because I do think a lot of the character that could have been in the original film could really be incorporated in them if they reimagine the film as like a finale to the series right uh, or i wonder if even you know it would be really cool uh, i don't know that they'll do this of course but uh you know what if we go through the entire time of the film in the series but just from a slightly different point of view right maybe you mm -hmm. know whatever whatever gelflings remain 
are kind of watching in some sense or they're involved in something over here where you get sort of a bird's eye view. You know, I don't know, but uh, that's that that really sparks my imagination, Eric. <laughs> I would love to see them, you know, try and get into that somehow. Uh, but hopefully not until like season, you know, eight or ten or something like that so we can have lots of uh, <laughs> shit. I'm the kind of guy that, you know, thinks that um... – that it's good for a season uh, for a show to end around like season five. Cause I think that's a pretty good length mm-hmm. for a show. And you basically get, you know, at that point, there's still no shortage of fresh ideas. So you can still end on a high note. Like mm-hmm. my, my philosophy when it comes to TV shows, end it when you're doing your best, do not ever yeah. end it when it's starting to run dry, end it when you are at your best. Yeah. Right. Breaking bad. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's actually where I got that quote from. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, well, that's what they did. So, no, I, I I tend to agree with that. Actually, I think usually if shows go beyond like a sixth season, like after that, it just starts to, you know, you could tell they're either running out of ideas or they've gotten about as much mileage as they can out of you know the existing structure of the show or something like that. So, but I would especially if you're basing your show off of. I don't know, a couple books written by an author and you just decide to wing the last season of the show because the book hasn't been written yet. <laughs> you know, we've got enough of that going on these days. Oh, that or, is a conversation. Oof. We could have that or, conversation or, or, for or hours. The, or, of course, the unfortunate tragedy of, you know, ha- what happened with the X-Files because the earlier seasons of the X-Files are so oh, good. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. then with the, right. with the exception of a couple of good episodes peppered here and there throughout the later seasons, it became so so underwhelming and you really get the point that man that they should have wrapped it up when they were still going strong when they still had that drive because ultimately if you continue your show for too long no matter how enthusiastic you are initially about the source material exhaustion inevitably Mm -hmm. will become a part of the work so you need to make sure you you wrap things up before that point comes in because once you get exhausted it shows and the yeah. writing and the and the yeah. overall tone of the show they're just not going to they're just not going to be able to crawl out of that. Yeah. Well, so far based on the quality of this show and just sort of Netflix's track record thus far, I don't have any reason to believe that they're going to extend it past the point where they shouldn't. So, I'm really looking forward to, you know, another four-ish seasons of The Dark Crystal if we can manage to get that. And um, you know, I'll just say about the ending that it was to to use the same word as you, Eric, a very bittersweet ending. I mean, on one hand, you know, the Gelflings have had this first, like, great success against the Skeksis, and now they have the the Shard, and, you know, Augur is there with them, and they know what they're up against, and, you know, finally, you know, they believe and understand that they have to oppose the Skeksis. But then, yeah, on the other hand, and I think Deet might have been my favorite of the main characters as well, Eric. I, I really think I really think she was, and... You know, when you see her walk away from the, everybody's just cheering and hugging each other and like just celebrating this victory that was just so hard won that they just achieved. And Deet kind of looks down at her hands and, you know, kind of with head bowed, walks away. And you can see Rian sort of reacting to all the jubilant people around him, kind of looking over people's shoulders, like looking for her and seeing that she's like separating herself from the group. And, that was a really sad sort of thread through that whole like final couple of scenes. Right. And my heart really went out to Deet, 
you know, and also it's a little bit ambiguous in terms of what she's going through and what the consequences are of what she's just done because, you know, nobody's explained it. I mean, you can get a sense that it's it's not good, <laughs> right? But it yeah. so, you know, part of the mystery there is, you know, is she uh, – how much is this harming her? Is she going to be able to come back from it? What does this mean for her character in the future? How is it going to change her? What has she really sacrificed? You know, and of course, when the Sanctuary Tree first gave her this power, she had some flashes, right? And it looked like some of these flashes were of the future. So I'm anticipating that this prophecy that we hear about in the movie may ultimately come from her. Yeah, you see the image of Jen putting the shard you know into the dark crystal which incidentally i do not believe was a screenshot from the movie i think they recreated they redid it and they did it very well which is another reason i think that if they do decide to recreate the film with this new writing team you know i think they do they could they do something they do some really special things with it i think but i i mean i i think that and then so one of these images that she had which i'm assuming is of the future (laughs) was she was like crouched like in a was it like in a throne room and she was like just bursting like all full to almost bursting with this uh with this darkening energy and it was like in her eyes and i think she was like shaking or something and if i'm gonna have to go back and watch it again but i i think that was actually the throne room where jen and kira stumble upon the writings of the prophecy like in the jungle like after they wake up from running from the chamberlain uh in the movie and that's what allows them to understand that they have to put the crystal, uh, the shard back into the dark crystal to uh, fix everything. So I could which be is, wrong. Which is again, which is again, because back to the movie, that's like the third time they explain that prophecy. So by that point, you already know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but that was the first time that they, those two characters got those specific details about the prophecy in terms of knowing what to actually do. Another angle, as far as the Deet situation, you know, she can absorb the darkening and release it. I'm not sure. I'm sure in the show she'll uh, learn to control it more, but is there a chance that maybe since the darkening is a corruption, a power of corruption, I wonder if maybe she'll get corrupted and maybe she becomes you know, turns more to the dark side with this it's, power. It's possible. I could see a, I could see a Deet versus Agra, you know, battle. See, I have That'd a feeling that they're going to use this uh, dark, this power that the tree gave her and the fact that she's kind of absorbing this darkening energy as, uh, as fuel for the fire of the, the themes of the movie. So I wouldn't be surprised if she has to fight off sort of like these darker impulses and things. Uh, but ultimately, didn't the sanctuary tree tell her that it's just energy, so it can be it can be redirected or transformed? So maybe you know, ultimately, it'll come to a point where she figures out how to transform the energy and use it for something else. I, I don't know. Uh, do you have right. any thoughts on that, Eric and Jess? Well, uh, my first thought is that absorbing is not a word. <laughs> yeah, I was, <laughs> I was like, did you just say absorbing? I'm having a little trouble with my elocution today. My articulation. <laughs> I beg your forgiveness. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I do think it would be it'll be interesting in later seasons, you know, to see how this power develops in her and how, you know, how hopefully the power itself will, you know, 
develop along with her character and evolve with her character and you know maybe maybe this darkening could be transformed into something valuable because it is ultimately used for to commit this you know good deed in the show so maybe this yeah. thing you know th there's something they can use it for maybe there is something useful that they can get out of this you know source of energy that they've discovered yeah i think that that moment will coincide with some sort of big like self-revelation uh with her i mean i'm just talking strictly from like a writer's point of view in terms of structure and mm -hmm. things right now but i just i just have an inkling that they might use it for something like that I think I think that pretty much sums up my thoughts, you know, okay. with, with what goes on with that. So let's just wrap up with some final thoughts about the show uh, before we say goodbye. So, uh, so Jess, what are your final parting thoughts about the Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance now on Netflix? Perfect that you mentioned Netflix because that's where I was going to start. I am so glad they decided to do this as a show versus, you know, even two or three movies i'd much rather see it as a show because there's so much story to tell you know and this is with all the comic books and the written books they've had expanding this this universe they've had literally 36 years to kind of 37 get the best parts yeah get the best parts of the world, the best parts of the story and really put it together. And on this first season, they've done a stellar job. So I'm glad to see it as a show. So you can really explore all the different themes and character arcs. And like I mentioned before, you don't even have to see the movie to enjoy the show. Oh yeah. It's just a fantastic show on its own. And like I mentioned with all the story to tell, we still get to see, basically, all the Gelflings get wiped out. The Skeksis rise to ultimate power. And there's just so much that can go on with this story. And talking about it today, I think I finished it the week after it came out. It came out, what, on the 6th? I can't remember. No, it came out on the 30th. But uh, mm -hmm. just talking about it today makes me kind of want to sit down and start it up again. Because... <laughs> You know, some shows like, oh, that's a good one. I'll come back and revisit that later. But this is a show that I kind of really want to revisit soon, you know, mm -hmm. sooner than later and get back into it because it's so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very excited. Eric, what are your final parting thoughts on this show? I mean, it's very rare to see something that is this well written. No, because I haven't seen... I remember when I saw when I saw the first season of Stranger Things back in 2016, how I marveled mm. at how structurally perfect that script was and how every seemingly insignificant piece added together, you know, to make this, you know, perfectly cohesive whole. Mm -hmm. And this show, and this is a lot coming coming, this is a lot coming for me because I was such a huge fan of that first season of Stranger Things. This, is, is is even better everything hmm. fits together so well every scene is necessary every word is necessary it, it gets to the point where you're like you know i i honestly think they might have been planning to make a movie but ended up making it a show when they realized how much bigger the story the story was you know that yeah. it needed a 10 episode series to to tell it and 
I think the best way for me to sum up my feelings on this show is that this is everything that the movie had the potential to be and the potential mm. to see it finally realized in such a beautiful, eloquent, fun, dark, intense, and, and wonderful way is just, it's, it's really a testament to the power of art and the power of storytelling, the mm, power absolutely. of the, the power of the human imagination. This is one of the best mm. fantasies ever made. On and I think medium. it is such a testament to the legacy of Jim Henson as well. You know, I mean, we wouldn't yeah. we wouldn't have this without him. I mean, no, he's been passed on for some years now, but uh, we would not have this without him. We wouldn't have had the original movie without him. And I think that, you know, the DNA of what he believed about storytelling and all the artistry, you know, that he was able to muster in his life really shines in this show. And uh, I yeah, so I agree with everything you're saying there. I think if we could resurrect Jim Henson from the dead and sit him down in front of Netflix, he'd watch the show. And afterwards, he'd probably be pretty happy. He might hang out till the next seasons come <laughs> before he goes back to the, the end. He'd, he'd, he'd be happy and be like, all right, back to bed now. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, good job. I have to believe that he would be incredibly pleased with how this has turned out, you know. Yeah. Because it is just amazing. So my, so were you done with your uh, final thoughts there, Eric? Well, I know that you know the Dark Crystal was was a real passion project to Jim for Jim Henson, and it always kind of it really made me sad watching the film to kind of see that potential for something that he really cared about mm. not come to full fruition, and to see it come to fruition here. God, I wish he was here to see it. I I, w- I wish he was here to see it because I really think this would have. Is is this would have been like such, such a. God, there are no words. There yeah. are no words to describe what this would be to a man like Jim Henson and how yeah. proud. And you know, he would thankfully, be to see this world I believe that they life. got as many of the original, you know, people involved as they could, because right. you know, I think I remember seeing in just the small part of the documentary about the making of the show uh, that I saw was, you know, they were saying something like. A lot of people were forgetting how we even did this back in the day, you know, so they really had to do some research and they had to talk to, you know, the people that were involved. And of course, the frouds are, you know, back working on it, which is probably, uh, well, which is definitely for the best. Let's make one of those old timey puppet movies. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, with that said, so my final thoughts on this uh, today are, wow, just wow. I mean, this this movie wowed me. It brought that that ineffable sense of wonder back into my life in, in, a, in a more intense way than it has been in a while. Um, you know, I really love that this show was able to get deeper into, you know, the possibilities of the story in this setting and the fact that it gave us more of the setting, more of Thra. I mean, you know, it wasn't just you know, the jungle in the Valley of the Mystics and the, and the you know, the Castle of the Crystal, it was, you know, the desert and the, uh, you know, all these, these other characters and the whole, you know, the four clans of the, uh, of the Gelflings and their societies. And, you know, it was truly the epic. Ecology. In, yeah, well, it was truly epic in scope. And I appreciate that in my fantasy fair. And I thought that, yeah. you know, the, the writing was just spot on. It was very, 
it was very emotionally moving, which is, you know, not something that I typically say about a production uh, that's filled 100% with puppets, you know? I mean, I love the Muppets and everything, but, like, this movie, or this show, it, it was just so affecting in ways that I didn't necessarily expect it to be. Yeah. And so, and so to wrap up, I would just say, you know, if for some ungodly reason you are listening to the spoilers section of this podcast and you have not seen the show yet, <laughs> please go watch it. You're welcome. <laughs> if you haven't gotten that message already, I'm just going to repeat it outright. You know, please go watch the show. I mean, it is, this is one of the best shows that I have seen in a while. Right. It, it really is. So on that note, I, I think that's really everything I have to say about it. Um, I just want to thank everybody who's listening to this podcast. We, you know, we hope that you enjoyed this episode and uh, have equally enjoyed the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Please, if you have a moment, uh, go on to Apple Podcasts and give us a uh, five-star rating and or review. And uh, if we can get uh, some of those, we will even read our favorite reviews uh, on the show. Eric, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Well, once more, everybody, I'm Eric Hansen, and you can uh, see my work and the work of many other fine people at Screen Hub Entertainment, where we will discuss current pop culture news and events. And if you are a fledgling writer wanting to see your work evaluated, I also am a script reader at International Screenwriters Association. We are always looking for fresh new talent to send in their work, and if you do, I might be the one to look at your script. Fantastic. Beautiful. Yeah. So, Jess, where can uh, where can our listeners find us online? Well, all you Poindexters can find us at mechadragon.net. And if you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts, so you can find us on Anchor. And like Jess, or Will mentioned, I'm Jess, Will mentioned earlier, we have uh, on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, everywhere else you listen to podcasts and find podcasts. Give us thumbs up, likes, five-star ratings, and reviews. We're on Facebook as Mecha Dragon, and we just set up a fun group there so you can join and uh, talk with other fans. Get us on Twitter and Instagram at Mecha Dragon Show. Shoot us an email if you'd like at mechadragonshow at gmail.com with any questions, comments, corrections, or topics you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. And uh, we will be back with the next season of Dark Crystal, I'm sure. But before then, lots of episodes. We're not sure what we're doing next, but we will see you in the future. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Take care. This is Captain Will signing out. Peace. Bye-bye. Our music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0, creativecommons.org slash licenses slash buy slash 3.0.